looks like we are good to go. Let's get started. How are we doing tonight? Who said that? All right, Brandon, you're doing great. How's everybody else doing tonight? All right, that was pretty lame, but I'm going to keep going. Um, okay. If you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 2. That's the verse we'll read together. I'm going to start with that in just a second. I'm going to pray. It's always good to do. Jesus, we thank you that you're here, that your presence is in this place. And we ask, God, that your word, uh, that you will communicate your truth. God, not just through the words spoken, not just through the verses we read, but through your whisper, the whisper of the Spirit in between the lines and in between the words and in between our thoughts. God, we give you permission to have your way and speak and deposit the, king, the seed of the kingdom into our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, I know there's some people that were not here last week, so I, I talked about power and purity, that we uh, are called to live uh, within uh, and, and be embodiments of a marriage between the power of the gospel and the purity of the gospel, that Jesus, I went through four generations of Christianity and the mission, the mission, the effective mission that Jesus modeled for us was a gospel of proclamation and demonstration. Paul did this. The disciples did this. And it's been all throughout. I went all throughout church history of examples where people would proclaim the gospel and then demonstrate the gospel. Jesus would preach and then he would heal. Jesus would uh, speak. Whatever you're preaching on, there should be a demonstration of it. There's no, uh, there's no divorce between the head and the heart. There's no divorce between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Amen? So that was where we went last week, and I'm not going to go anymore because that was last week. You can listen to the podcast online if you want to hear it. This week I'm going to talk, uh, really I felt the Lord prompting me to build uh, kind of an understanding of the dynamic that takes place of what it means to be to walk in personal holiness and to walk in the power of the gospel and really build a groundwork to understand these things, particularly where we're going to be coming back from India in a place where uh, the miraculous power of God is on display at a level that it's just not in America. And I don't want to get into why I think that is, but uh, we're going to have testimonies is the point. And I want to prepare your hearts for how to receive the testimonies in such a way that it actually leads to empowerment and inspiration and becoming more like Jesus. And so, and, and, and kind of build a grid and an understanding for, for how we become holy and how we walk in power, because I believe dependence is the key to all of this. So uh, my message is on dependence, and uh, particularly going to focus on a word called kenosis, which is in Philippians 2 passage, passage. and I'm going to define for you uh, what a, a term called kenotic Christology. So does anybody know what Christology means? Like, can we get our, I know a few people do. So it's like a fancy term for understanding who Jesus is. So who we've, we've say these things like Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? You should be nodding your heads. If you say no to that, that's a problem, right? He is fully God, fully man. Christology is trying to make sense of what does that mean? What does that actually look like? How does that, what implications does that have for healthy spirituality, for any spirituality? And this term canonic Christology uh, I believe is a big key 
to understanding and grasping this Christology will have healthy implications and actually mean something for you. It means something for walking in spiritual power. It means something for, uh, for be becoming holy, like Jesus is holy. And I actually believe that if we don't have a healthy understanding of Christology and what I'm going to define as canonic Christology, uh, you actually are vulnerable to spiritual pride entering in because we don't understand the dynamic. We don't understand the foundation on which the house is built. So we want to walk in power and purity, but if we don't have a foundation, that house will fall. Yes, thank you, whoever said that. You're following me. So uh, this verse, Philippians 2. I'm going to read Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I read an extra verse. That was just for bonus points. So this word kenosis is the word to empty. Right? And there's this understanding when it comes to the Christology of Jesus of how did Jesus live his life is that Jesus is eternally God. He always was God. He always will be God. But this passage demonstrates and sets up this idea that though he was God, he emptied himself and he became a man. And so I'd just like to present to you, and I'm going to build on this argument tonight, that though Jesus was God, he chose not to live like God. He like had, I've heard it said like this, like he had the God card, he didn't play it, he put it in his back pocket. Though he was God, he chose to empty himself and become dependent and live and demonstrate what a life looks like to be a man fully dependent upon God. A man in right relationship with God, right? It's basically like sin messed us up so much that Jesus is like, I'm going to come back and show you who you were supposed to be. I'm going to demonstrate and model for you what it looks like for a human being to live in a right relationship with Father God. Okay. Some people will say um, that this, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait just a second when I get that. This is important to understand because if we don't have an understanding of what this, this right relationship looks like, we get poor mindsets around uh, walking in spiritual power. We get poor mindsets in walking in personal holiness. I touched on this briefly last week. But what happens when it comes to personal holiness, if we don't understand it comes through dependence upon the Father, we veer into legalism. right? And who has seen something from a, from a holy, it's time to be holy, that you felt like it was rigid and legalistic and hard and cold? Right. Who, who wants, who's done it in your, who, who's seen it in their own life? <laughs> All right, there's the brave ones. <laughs> if you need some courage, have them pray for you afterwards. Uh, and then, you know, we can veer into like charismatic Christianity, right? And there, there's poor mindsets that get around walking in spiritual power. And if we don't understand that spiritual power flows through dependence upon the Father and a self-emptying, we can veer into conceit and spiritual pride, right? And you become conceited. Who has experienced that within themselves? Yeah, this is a human thing. So I, I really think uh, this is really important to understand then this kenosis. This is to understand the dynamic, the relationship that God is wanting to burden you. Because it's a very powerful relationship, but there is, uh, there's some things to understand. Are you following me? Just nod your head. Okay. All right, uh, I, I do, before I go on, I want to, uh, I want to clarify one thing. Uh, when we, we talk about kenosis and self-emptying, 
I don't think this necessarily means we pray a prayer sometimes. It's like, I want nothing of myself. I want all of you. That's not how God designed it. He formed you in perfection. Right? He is like the master artist, and he loves you, and he made you. So the prayer isn't like nothing of me, all of you. The prayer is all of you and all of me. Right? He created, there's an essence to you that's pure. There's, a, there's an inherent goodness to who you are because you were created by him. And so there's a verse in, talks about when Gideon, it says that the Holy Spirit came and put him on like a glove. And I like that. So it's, it's, Gideon still had a part. He has a personality. He has like an essence to him. And God simply came and filled that completely. So when we pray, I don't want anything of me, I think a better way is saying, I don't want the flesh in me. I don't want the impurity in me. I don't want anything that is not who you made me to be residing within this temple. The temple of God's made to be holy, pure, and completely filled with the spirit of the living God. Amen? So that, you see what I'm saying? I just don't want to have this self-degradating thing. Okay, so I'm going to read a few verses for you that are Jesus' embodiment of this kenosis, and he, he really clearly demonstrates the level of dependence that he has on the Father. I'm going to read three verses from the Gospel of John. The first one is John 8, 28. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Nothing on my own initiative. This is God becoming a man. I do nothing on my own initiative. Next one I'm going to read is from John chapter 12. Verses 49 through 50. It says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given a commandment to me as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his, his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And this is probably my favorite one. If you just turn one page further, if you're following me, in John 14, verse 10, Jesus says this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his works. So again and again, he's, he's, he's demonstrating this, like, I only do what I see the Father doing. I don't do it on my own initiative. I do in obedience to the Father. Are you following me? This is a radical promotion of self-denial, of self-surrender, of complete yielding unto the goodness of the Father. And Jesus is modeling this because he's trying to demonstrate what man in right relationship looks like. And we'd so lost sight of this in the fall that this is the only way. We needed a visual aid to see what is it like to live again in connection and communion with God. Now, some people say uh, this sounds dangerous. That sounds like dangerous thinking. Um, it sounds like you're creating mankind to be too powerful. You're setting people up for failure. You're setting people up for, you know, is Jesus a prototype? I don't know if he can actually be a prototype of what it looks like. Like, Jesus is a powerful guy, right? He did amazing things. How can you say that was just as a man in right relationship to God? Are you setting people up for walking down a path that leads somewhere unhealthy? And I don't like to negate questions, and so I really like to dive deeply and understand things. And so uh, my, my, what I believe, I wouldn't be teaching this if I thought that that was true. I don't think that this is dangerous thinking. I actually think that this is dangerous thinking if you don't believe that this is true. I actually think you're setting 
setting yourself up to walk in a way that you were not designed to? Who are you not to be powerful? You're a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Heaven and the God that spoke and created worlds. So you are born to be powerful. Power, we, we have a fear of power. We have a fear of pride that has infected a lot of Christianity. Oh, don't let people be powerful because then they'll become prideful. There's truth in that because power can reveal pride. I actually talked about that last week. But that is not, the, we don't shy away, right? Fear is an attack of hell. So if there's fear surrounding something, we don't run away from it. We need to engage with it and understand why is power corrupting people? Why, why are we afraid of these things? Are you following me? Okay, so I want to take us back all the way to the Garden of Eden, and I want to just take a look that I think may be a fresh perspective of some of you of what really happened at the fall, right? Because before the fall, we have to remember that God is put, put mankind in a garden, right? And he's given Adam work to do, which is purpose, right? He's given Adam authority to name. He's given man Right, universal man, authority. He's given them power. Name the animals. Like, you're the boss. You're the man. That's some crazy power, right? And he's given them intimacy. He makes Adam for Eve. They have intimacy. They're naked and unashamed. He walks with them. He talks with them in the cool of the day in a garden. This place is perfect. Mankind has purpose. They have power, and they have pleasure. How's that for alliteration? That's like the most closest thing to a three-point sermon I'll ever get right there. Purpose, power, pleasure in a garden. This place is amazing. And it was all flowing from dependence in God. Right? This is what God has for us. He's designed us for great purpose. There's a significance. We crave significance as humans. But we try to find it oftentimes other places when we don't recognize God wants to meet that desire. We have a craving. We were made to be authority. God gave us authority. And he gave authority. And he redeems this in the call. I've given you authority. Go to the nations. Preach the gospel. It's why we're going to India. Because he's given authority. There's a God-given desire within us to be powerful because we're made like him. We're like him. How powerful is he? Right? And he's given us a God-given desire for pleasure. Marriage is beautiful. Sexual intimacy is beautiful. Culture perverts it, but it came from God. Amen? I'm not going to preach on that anymore. I'm not married. I know. Okay. The point here is that Satan comes in in Genesis 3. I'm going to read the, packet, the passage, then I'll unpack it a bit. It says, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. What happened here? I first want to draw your attention to the fact that what Satan is coming is he is directly challenging a relationship of dependence upon God. So he literally comes right into this place of dependence. Don't eat the tree, Adam and Eve. And, right, and that was the only thing they knew, is relationship with God. That was, their, that was their marker for truth. Everything, every thought they thought was in this relationship with God. So Satan goes, did, did God really say that you're going to die if you eat that thing? So he's coming, he's 
directly attacking this place of abiding, this place of dependence. And Eve, you can see how dependent they were. So she spots out, well, God said, you don't eat of that tree. We can eat here, but we eat there. Everything was, they found life in the voice. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They were in this place of living in the life of God. He challenges it, and he starts trying to get her to start imagining thoughts that are now outside of relationship with God. No, God didn't say, you're going to become like God. You eat the tree, you're going to get wise, you're going to become like God. And he's actually tempting her to leave this place of dependence and to start imagining a life of independence where you can make your own decisions. And the temptation isn't that you're going to be like God. The temptation is, why do you need to listen to God? Is God really good? She's actually, Satan is attacking the goodness of God. Saying, is, it, is that really a good thing that you're not to eat from that? Because look at that. It's so good. It's so like wise looking. What does a fruit look like that makes it wise? You ever wondered that? I wondered that this week. Oh, that'll make me wise if I eat that apple. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, she needed some more wisdom. But, uh, but she's starting to imagine, okay, well, maybe God's not good. Maybe it's better for me to do this. And he pulls her away in her mind, and then her actions soon follow her mind. And she makes a decision not to become like God, but actually to become her own God. That's independence. Now, I actually don't need you to tell me what to do because I think I understand what's good myself. And I'm going to make my own decisions for me. And you become your own God. I'm autonomous, I'm independent, and I'm now separate from God. And then immediately fruit, what do they do? They go hide themselves, hide away from God. That's not really possible. God finds them. But Satan came and brought a wedge from a dependent relationship and created an independent relationship. Does this make sense? I don't want to spend like all night on this, and I feel like I was a little like, am I going to be able to talk about this quick enough? I believe that all spiritual attack, this is paradigmatic of all spiritual attack, it's always going to attack either being a place of connected to the Father versus disconnected from the Father. And I believe that the devil can use the scripture to do this. We can, mind, we can find moral reasoning and judgments within the scriptures of the Bible that are not in connection to the Father. Right? We can use the Bible to kind of come over here. I'm just going to use the Bible to figure out what's right and wrong, and then I'll do it my own. And that's still not in relationship to the Father. Are you following me? So the devil is crafty, more crafty than all the beasts of the field. And his desire, and every time he ever tempts you, it's to get you to do something that is disconnected from the Father. He wants your reasonings disconnected from the Father. He wants you asking questions that you're not looking to the Father to answer. He wants you independent. He wants you operating in autonomy because he's convinced mankind this is where you can be powerful. This is how you can figure out how you can get all your needs met. And everything gets perverted by selfishness and the conundrum goes generation after generation after generation and it's pain and brokenness and destruction. And so Jesus comes in the midst of this conundrum and says, no! This is what it looks like to live in dependence again with the Father. This was your destiny. This is what I designed you for, to live in such a place of communion that he can use you to do anything. And that's why in John 14, 12, he says, don't just get so excited about the works. You're going to do greater things than I did. 
And then, John, and then he, continue, and he starts John 14 by saying, In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. The word's Monet. He's not talking about rooms of a castle. He's talking about you. Because he was the dwelling place of God. He's saying, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to send my spirit. And he's going to make you righteous. I'm going to cleanse you with my blood. Send my spirit to you. And I'm going to make you a dwelling place of the God of heaven. So that his spirit can come in you and through you. And you'll do greater things than I did. And sometimes we get in this thing like, oh yeah, I can't do greater things than Jesus did. Jesus is the best. Jesus is awesome. No, Jesus was the best leader ever. And the goal of leadership is to reproduce yourself and make your ceiling the next generation's floor. And if you look at how many people Peter led to the Lord, it was more than Jesus. That's kind of crazy. Peter led more people to Jesus than Jesus led to Jesus. Crazy, right? Obviously, Jesus is not insecure. Because Peter denied him. I mean, come on. <laughs> Satan wants us to start operating autonomy, become our own God, make your own decisions. This results in the ground is cursed, purpose is lost, marriage is cursed, pleasure is lost and perverted, and our authority is handed over to Satan. Because we see in the temptation in Luke, he comes to Jesus and says, all these kingdoms have been handed over to me, and I can give them to whoever I want. Bow to me. Those kingdoms were supposed to be ours. And so Jesus redeems that, looks at Peter. This is the rock I'm going to build my church, and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, the authority back. So there's redemption in the blood, but it all got lost. I don't believe that God cursed us. I believe curse was the natural consequence of what took place when we are now independent from the Father. So Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to live in full humanity, um, but that power and holiness comes through self-surrender. He makes a way for us to come back to a place of kenosis, of self-emptying, so that we can enter right back into that place of communion, independence, dynamic dependence with the Father. So I believe that this thinking promotes surrender. That's the only thing it promotes. Yes, God has spiritual power for your life. But the cost, the cross, is surrender. Yes, he wants you to be holy like he's holy. But the cost is surrender. It, this does not promote pride. This does not promote autonomy. This does not promote human independence. This does not promote, I can go and heal whoever I want. I can go do this. I've got the gift of prophecy and I can read your mail all day. That's not what this promotes. This promotes I can only do what I see my father doing. All right, uh, turn your Bibles to John 15. Because Jesus didn't just model this. He then, at the end of his life, actually commissions us into a new dynamic. He demonstrated what it looked like to live in dependence upon the Father. And then he invited us into a similar co-creation, co-creator relationship with himself. Right? And these are famous verses. They're some of my favorite. I'm just going to read John 15, verse 5. If you're an axe, you need to go left. All right. John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do... Say that again. Say it one more time. Nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do 
Nothing. All right? A lot of times I think we're like, oh, that's like a metaphor. Jesus is so, you know, he's goofy like that. He just kind of says things. and You know, there's like spiritual meaning. No, no, nothing. Okay, this doesn't mean you can't brush your teeth or you can't get dressed in the morning. What he's saying is that you were designed, if you follow John 15 a little further, it says, and the fruit will abide. You were designed to create fruit through your life that abides for generations and generations, and I believe actually passes into eternity. It says that your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know how you change the world? You create things. You make artifacts. How much did your, your iPhone change the world? How much did highways change American transportation? How much did, you know, just name your, name your thing. That's how you change the world. You make, you create things. And I believe that Jesus, our destiny, is to create artifacts of the kingdom that change the world because they're artifacts of the kingdom. And they change the way we live our lives because they make us, they bring us into an alignment and an influence with righteousness. They infect the world with the righteousness of the kingdom. That's our destiny. So it's not like, oh, you can do nothing. You're just going to lay in bed and be a vegetable if you don't abide in me. No, that's not true. What he's saying is you'll do nothing of significance. You'll do nothing that lasts and and truly fulfills your calling, your destiny in this world. You were made for so much more. And he's saying, you need me. I've designed you to need me. But the crazy thing is that he's actually designed this to need us. Because a vine, Andrew Murray, if you want to read a book called Abide in Christ, it's much more thorough than this. But a vine has the life It has the rootedness. It has the nutrient. It has everything the branch needs to bear fruit. But there is no fruit on a vine. A branch has nothing it needs to bear fruit disconnected from the vine. But branches are made to bear fruit. So look at the love of God of how he's designed this life to work. I am so content. Jesus is like, I'm so content just being the vine. I don't, I'm so content, and I want to use you to bear my fruit. Whoa, that's so exciting. That's my biggest question for God when I get to heaven. Why did you make it so that you needed us to bear fruit? Like, why? We're so messy. Like, why? Like, I don't get that. I'll never get that. That is just the radical love of the Father. And I will say this. God will get his, his purposes accomplished. Whether or not you obey him, he will find someone else. Uh, he, you know, so it's not like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not like trying to say God won't do anything if, like, God is able. But this is like plan A for God. Let me put it that way. He wants to use you. And he's chosen to make himself dependent upon us. And it's an interdependent connection, a vine and a branch. These are his words not mine. I'm simply unpacking the parable. But this is how God has set up the dynamic in his wisdom, and I would call this dynamic co-laboring or co-creating. Right? Uh, moving in spiritual power is a work of co-labor. Moving in, living in personal holiness is a work of co-labor. It all comes from abiding in the vine of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is really important to understand. Because in a co-laboring relationship, how many people are involved? At least two, right? So a lot of times we have these weird things that go on uh, where people will say, like, your worship song blessed me so much. People say, oh, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And you're like, no, it was not that good. 
right? Like, it blessed me, but it was not that good, right? And we have these, this weird dynamic of how to give praise within the body of Christ, Right? And this is where I think a lot of pride comes in, okay? Because some people probably overpraise and then they do get conceited. And then so then people see that, so it's like, oh, I'm not going to give them any praise. So then I don't want them to get prideful. And then the people are like, I'm so needing encouragement, but no one will give it to me, right? And then they're like trying to seek it out some other healthy way. Like we're made for affirmation, right? Whose love language is words of affirmation? Yeah, that's me as well. So if we live in a culture and start making this thing that if I give affirmation, I'm going to make someone prideful, we're actually denying them of the love that Jesus desires to give. And we're doing it in the name of poor theology. All right, this is why this stuff gets real practical and real important. So in a co-laboring relationship, there's two parts involved, right? In the dynamic of the vine and the branch, the vine is more vital and more important. The vine dies, it's all over, right? The vine is the most important but the branch bears the fruit. The only branches that bear fruit are ones that are abiding in Christ. Are you following me? So we have permission to honor fruitful branches. Really. And what we honor is that they said yes. Right? The path of kenosis, the path of self-surrender is a series, a long life of progressively saying yes at a deeper and deeper place. I will give it all to you. What you ask, I will give again and again and again, and I will hide myself in you, and I will seek you. And I promise you, fruitful branches did things in secret places that no one ever saw where they emptied themselves, where they gave sacrificially, where they, you know, where they poured themselves out out of love to Jesus. And what we can honor is, I might not see it, I might not know that, but because you're bearing fruit, I'm going to honor you as a vessel of the Lord that said yes. Amen? Right? What do we honor Jesus for? He's the inspiration. He's the very life. He's the nutrient. He's the source. He's the originator. He is everything. All the glory belongs to him. And a, vine, a branch that is in dependence, all that glory will flow right to him. So we don't have to worry what people do about it. Right, but there's a man named Bill Johnson that I think he addresses this with wisdom unlike I've ever heard. And he says, what I do is when people put the praise that belongs to Jesus upon me, it's like then I have a crown that I can worship him with. And when I get away into the, the private place, I get on my knees and I worship him with the crown that I've been crowned with or the praise that belonged to him because of what he did for me on the cross of Calvary. Amen? If you want to learn humility, I think that's where you learn it where you recognize that in the midst of my brokenness, you desire to use me for your glory, and you get privately, and you, you know all the people, that, you know, whatever's happening, and you can get before him, and you know the only reason that, you, that you'd stood, the only reason that God used you to do blank or do blank is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and you look at the lamb that was slain, and you worship him with many crowns thrown at his feet. That is where humility is birthed. And I feel like so many people are missing this place because we're so afraid of giving honor and giving praise. And we don't know how to do it. We're afraid of pride. This is an attack. It's an attack on the humility of the body of Christ. We need to be, know how to honor both God and man. Why? If we only honor man, we're committing idolatry. 
Acts 8.17 talks about this. It's Simon the magician. He sees the power that the apostles are moving in as they're laying hands. People are being baptized in the spirit. Comes to Peter and says, hey, can I give you money so I can do this too? Right? He's only honoring the vessel. And that's a mistake. He's committing idolatry. That sets yourself up in a very scary place for self-promotion. Because you start thinking that what's resting on a person can come. Oh, let me give you. I want to be friends with you. Give it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, I give you, can we be friends? And I have that same thing flowing through me too? No, that's not how it works. It's God. They're just the vessel. Uh, if we only honor God and we don't honor man, we're actually, we don't know how to steward testimony. Because we're like, wow, that's really impressive. God used you to heal blind eyes. That's, God's amazing. You're impressed, but you're not really inspired. Because you don't have any vision. It's not like... It's not like, oh, wow, that inspires me in anything in my life. It's just kind of like, wow, God's amazing. He, whew, you go, Lord. You go, right? The reality is it's both. God is saying when someone gives a testimony of an amazing thing that God does to their lives, you can honor God as like, yeah, he is amazing. But you can also honor the vessel that all they did was say yes. You see what I'm saying? Then inspiration. Whoa. If you can use them, you can use me. They can say yes, I can say yes. You're the same today, yesterday, forever. You never change. You didn't stop in the book of Acts doing what you're doing. If you're doing it in them, you can do it in me. Are you following me? I had a a story. There's a a young man that uh, years ago, maybe... I don't know, a couple, two, three years ago, I'll be anonymous for the sake of the story, but uh, he came to me and he said, I saw you preaching. He said, and I was overcome and I prayed a prayer and I said, God, I want whatever he's got. And, uh, and, and now I have witnessed the power of God and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and God moving through this young man in a way that I'm like, holy cow, like this is crazy. It's only been a couple years. And That's the testimony that I want to see. That's what God wants us to do. We don't want to have competition in the body of Christ. We want to be inspired and spurred on when we witness God moving upon a life. Amen. I want that story of that young man multiplied again and again and again. Not on me, on you. I want people looking at you across the coffee table and saying, the way God moves through your life, I told him, I want it through mine. That's the gospel. That's what sets the world on fire. Multiplication. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be done. Um, but I actually, I want to, so in the coming weeks, couple, next couple of weeks, once we get back, uh, I'm going to be going into the dynamic of how do you co-labor for sanctification? How do you co-labor in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And trying, again, to continue to marry these and keep these in tension. So that's where we're going the next couple of weeks. That's all building. Again, I feel like it's one long sermon. So come back if you want to hear. Um, I want to close tonight, though, uh, and I want to give you an opportunity to just yield more fully to the Holy Spirit. And so uh, sometimes I think God just, like actions, we don't have an altar, but I'm going to ask people to stand, uh, to stand if, as just a sign that, God, I'm wanting. You know, I, honestly, it doesn't really matter what you do, but if you stand, you can kneel at your seat. If you want to come forward, you can come forward. 
Actually, don't come forward because the prayer team will be up here. You can go backwards. Um, but I, I want to give a space for you to just respond like with your body to the Lord as an outward sign of something in your heart that's saying, God, I want to go deeper into this place of kenosis and to self-empty. And then I want to pray for us, and then we'll move into ministry time. So, uh, Brad, you can put some music on or something. Um, but if you want to stand up, you can stand up. And I'm going to pray. Father God, I know that you're pleased when you look upon this, your people who are called by your name. And I pray, Lord, that this, uh, that this be real. God, that this be an ongoing progression into a greater depth of humility. Lord, I pray that you will reveal humility before the eyes of us as your people, that you will reveal it like a pearl of great price, that we will seek with our lives to know you more. God, we want to see how far we can journey into our weakness so that we can behold your power flowing through a vessel that has become completely yours. God, I thank you that everything in your temple cries glory. And I pray that over us as your people, as your dwelling places, as the Monets that you purchased on the cross that can hold your glory. God, I pray that you will just establish us in a place of such self-surrender and dependence upon the Father that we can live our lives in such a way that, that if people have seen us, they have seen you, Jesus. I pray that the day will come that we can, we can stand in the shoes of, of you, Lord, when you were almost upset with Thomas, when he said, show us the Father, and it's enough. And he said, Thomas, you've seen the Father's love because you've seen me, because I'm so self-surrendered, I look like him. God, I pray that we'll be a people who are so self-surrendered that you are manifested on the regular in both power and purity. God, in the gifts of your spirit and the fruit of your spirit so that the world will see Jesus Christ, the desire of the nations in and through our lives. God, I pray for a hunger and a thirst to know you more. I pray, God, for a desire to go deeper than we've gone, to journey further than we knew we could, and to always say yes, no matter the cost, because we know, Lord, in faith that the reward far exceeds it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name.